Welcome to the show, everybody. Exciting news about the Head Talks Tour, the psychedelic version of Stand Up Science. Going to be mixing researchers and comedy and art and much more and uh, have the trial run coming up in December. And the exciting news is a partnership with the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies and Dance Safe. More info coming soon, but stay tuned for the end to hear more about them and our partnership. I'll talk with you soon. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Haven't recorded one of these in a while, trying to nail this intro. You guys know how bad I am at the intros. After we get through with it, everything is smooth sailing. So let's see. Now I'm committed. I'm talking with Associate Head of the Department of Psychology and Adjunct Faculty in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, one of our favorite subjects, here at the University of Tennessee. Todd Freeberg is joining me today. Todd, we did it. That was almost, I only plugged like a little bit of a word. (laughs) It was perfect. And it's fine. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm uh, grateful for this opportunity. It's yeah, great to talk to you. Your show so the other much. night was fantastic. Oh, thanks. I paid Todd to tell people how great stand-up science is. That was a fun... Uh, I was I was real out of sorts that night um, because uh, usually venues do all the ticketing and uh, I had to do the ticketing, but no one told me that. Not my assistant. Not my, and then I showed up and people were wanting to get in and i didn't have a list of things uh, to get people in. it was a whole thing mm-hmm. and so that was that was one of the most flustered that i've that i've ever been during stand-up science and you still enjoyed it scruffy city hall that's a cool um it's a cool venue i like the backdrop yeah yeah and uh the the balcony where apparently there were some some scoff laws that got in yeah parents, yeah so. there's there's right? like a whole separate second entrance to get to the balcony so people could just wander up there without paying as a nightmare um but other than beautiful stage um but uh yeah probably not going back there um but it was a lot of fun um so first off tell give people a little bit of a, a brief overview of some of your work and your background uh so you long story short story uh yeah when i said brief i meant as long as you want okay yeah uh, we got time so i have been fascinated by animal behavior since i can remember since being a little kid um and got interested in animal communication probably as an undergraduate um, and then started really looking into it in some of the research that I did as an undergraduate and then been doing that ever since. Um, Mm. Started studying birds mainly because as an undergraduate, like a lot of undergraduates, I was interested in whale song and my undergraduate advisor that's that's the big that's the everyone's rushing into the whales yeah. whale song field is that what's going on yeah and but he he advised me that there's only really like a handful of research centers and universities around the world that study that whereas there's 
hundreds and hundreds of universities around the world where birdsong and bird calls are studied. Get into the birds. Think about birds. It's a little more practical. Yeah. Yeah. And so I never looked back. That's what I've been doing since then. Hmm. Uh, Are you you a big, outside of research, are you, would you say like you're a bird watcher? If you're off the clock, will you hang out and watch the bird? Do you do that? What do they call that thing where you try to check off all the different species. The big year is the big, I've never done a big year. I, I've been here 18 years now. I think I can safely identify 18. It's about one a year, Hmm. new species that I learn. Hmm. So I'm pretty good with the handful of birds that you can find here in the winter. Okay. Everything else is, uh, it's anybody's guess. I'm not a birder. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not a birder at all. Uh, all right. Let's talk about those weirdos then. I just wanted to. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, that is, uh, that's always, um, I I don't know. It's fascinating to me that the, the, the big year where people, uh, what is it? They like travel all around the world trying to tell people about it. it, I just so. They know what we're talking about right now. So my understanding is the the movie that what Jack Black and Steve Martin were in. Uh, do you remember this movie? From oh no, several years ago. Is that how I know about this? No, I never saw uh, it. Though. It's uh, my understanding from talking to people that have done this or thought about it is that the movie's pretty close hmm. to what the reality is. So you're literally you're flying from one site to another. You schedule out your whole year based on when birds are migrating, where they're likely to be found in a lot of diversity and a lot of numbers. <laughs> it's not cheap to yeah. do this. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I don't get it, but it's I, I something for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so... It, it, so you got into studying bird communication. Mm-hmm. What's what's like? Um, what's that path like? What is what is bird communication one hundred and one? How how do you how do you start getting into a specific field like that? Uh, well, so when I started, the the studies of birdsong learning were still pretty common. Like what kinds of mechanisms are important for a particular species to learn its songs? Does it require social interaction with other, you know, conspecifics? Does it require uh, feedback? Like when it sings a song, does it get immediate behavioral feedback from another bird? Does it just need to hear its song to develop a normal song? Uh, Or in some cases like bird calls or the songs of certain species, maybe it's instinctive. It's sort of built into the species from the onset. And so experience really isn't important. So I was interested in all those kinds of really basic questions. Um, and then in the species I was studying, it's uh, called the brown-headed cowbird. It's a blackbird that's a brood parasite. I don't know if you've come across this oh, species. Oh, I love ventures. a good brood parasite. Right. Tell people all about it. <laughs> I'm not sure that we've talked about them on the podcast oh, before. great. I mean, I'm sure that... It, you know, I'm I'm sure I have a fair number of listeners that are David Attenborough fans, and and you know that they've they've been um, portrayed in some of those documentaries. Yeah. So they are one of the least loved species in North America, <laughs> maybe behind house sparrows and starlings and pigeons. Uh, they're they're called obligately brood parasitic because the females in brown-headed cowbirds they don't build their own nests. They don't lay their own eggs in their own nests. They always lay their eggs in the nests of other species. Uh, And so this species was sort of built up as it's a songbird species. It should learn its song. But here's a case where it's always growing up in the nest of another species. 
So maybe it shouldn't learn its song. Maybe natural selection should have shaped it to have mm-hmm. this sort of instinctive song development. Um, yeah, so the the brood parasites, basically, they're, you lay an egg in another bird's nest, and then depending on the species, it's basically meant to kind of sort of blend in with the other kids that rarely do they um but or or they have or they'll push the eggs all the other eggs out of uh of the actual um uh offspring of of the the mother there and then um the they parasitize basically the the hosts and those those kind of foster parents then end up feeding the kid that isn't theirs and it's sometimes bigger than themselves yeah, exactly. So it's it's they're not like the cuckoo in England and, and Europe where the, the cuckoo sort of kicks all the eggs out or the nestlings out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are reports of cowbirds, they think maybe accidentally just muscling an, an egg out or some, or mm-hmm. uh, uh, another nestling out of the nest. Um, but otherwise they just kind of blend in. They just sort of, and they don't always blend in visually. They're often bigger than the other nestlings in the nest. But for whatever reason, there's a lot of species that don't reject them, uh, but just raise them as if they were their own. Uh, And so you've got a young cowbird that's growing up, hearing the sounds of another species. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that you don't hear cowbirds naturally singing songs of other species. So it must be instinctive, right? Mm. That it must just develop according to some maturational plan. But what... My graduate advisors, Meredith West and Andrew King at Indiana University had found is that they learn their song just like any other species. Uh, We found that they need to interact socially with conspecifics to really learn their song well and be Mm -hmm. able to use it well. Um, And then the studies I did uh, for my uh, dissertation looked at how not just song but mating preferences of females based on song uh, were culturally transmitted, how they were like socially learned across generations. So. Yeah, so some are into rap, some are into exactly. pop music. Yeah. And- this was a, there was a, a South Dakota population and an Indiana population, and you can probably run with any number of sort of human-oriented <laughs> jokes about culture well let me in ask South you Dakota and Indiana are you able to decode yeah I, I put two different uh, I put a bird in the room from each of those areas and and they're singing just by ear without like analyzing in a computer or whatever do you know which one's from which region not now yeah. but um, you I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bragging but yeah I, I used to be able to yeah there's yeah. some subtle note differences in the, <laughs> in the songs of the t- uh, males of the two populations uh, all, all of the weird skills that we acquire <laughs> and sometimes lose in, in life yeah. it's fascinating that one's lost <laughs> um so uh, so then what uh, what was the next step from there uh well so that got me really interested in just this notion of the social environment that you're in how that plays a huge role on the behavior that you produce and if you think about that in our species, that's social psychology. That's the field of social psychology. Uh, and so I started doing... And by the way, I am my own unique, authentic self that is not influenced by others. But speaking of uh, other okay. people... But for everybody <laughs> but for else. for everybody else, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we just started messing around with different kinds of social groupings, the, the size of a group that an individual is in, the diversity of members in a group that an individual is in. How does that affect the way they communicate? How does that affect their ability to solve problems? 
those are the kinds of things we've been doing over the last uh, 10 years or so. It's a combination of field experiments, um, and we have these really large cages out at uh, our field site out near Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Are there are there a lot of like clicks out there within a given? So so you take a bird in one specific region that that uses kind of mostly the same kind of song variation. But are there are there within that region? Are there like the cool birds that everyone's trying to emulate, or or is it just some of the birds are just better at making the the kind of same song? Or how does that work? But with, with in terms of variation within um, yeah, yeah. one population? That's a fantastic question that I can't answer. Um, but like why why some songs are copied and some aren't? Uh, why some, we, we're, right now we're studying uh, a particular call system that uh, a handful of birds in North America use the chickadee call. So chickadees are named after this and titmice. Um, and it's got a really complicated structure but it's it's a call. It's not really a song that's used in mating and for you know territorial uh, keeping different pairs separated from one another in space. Um, but like, why individuals learn this song versus this song? Why they learn from this male versus this other male? Or in the case of the call, why they might learn from this female as opposed to another female? We don't know. Hmm. And so, uh, how much do these different cultures interact like if if you're uh if if you're a male from one region singing one song and you're maybe uh, you, um find yourself in this other region trying to pick up a female with a different song is it ever going to work or is it just hopeless do they is there a lot of like in group um like territorial fighting mm -hmm. that or things that are regulated by song is mating behavior and speciation regulated by it. Yeah. I mean, so song plays an important role in a lot of species for keeping sort of when, when two different groups come back together, it's, it can be an isolating mechanism. Mm. Um, uh, sometimes it breaks down and you have hybrid sort of interbreeding between members of the different species. Uh, for the species we're studying now, chickadees and titmice, they're resident year round. And so they don't move around a whole lot. So it would be sort of unlikely for a, like an East Tennessee bird to all of a sudden pick up and move to Nashville and sort of integrate with the, the Nashville population. Um, on the other hand, for the bird I was talking about earlier, brown-headed cowbirds, those kinds of species that migrate, there's starting to be a little bit of information about, you know, when they go to their breeding ground, the overwintering grounds, when they reach the migration point, they're probably coming into contact with birds from lots of different populations. Uh, and so what kinds of things are going on down there? Do they tend to, like, does a, does a, a, a Wisconsin population that's migrating together, do they hang out together in Texas or in Mexico where they're going to overwinter? Um, in some species, it seems like they do sort of hang around in groups a mm. little bit, but we don't know a whole lot about that time period. Hmm. I um I lived in Malibu. I, I I wish I knew more about birds and could identify the species. But I I remember um I lived in Malibu. I'd be out on the beach sometimes, and there'd be the the uh, uh, local population of birds that was always there that I would recognize. And then when it when there was like a migration pattern, I I remember these 
other birds coming in and just acting like they owned the place. And all, all the birds that are usually there were like looking at them like, hey, what's going on here? But the birds that were migrating just seemed like they settled right in, like felt very much mm-hmm. at home, I guess, just because they're that's their norm is that they're always on the move. Yeah, yeah. And my guess is in, in a lot of species, the territoriality can break down a lot once you get out of the breeding season. Mm. Uh, and so the ability to be near high densities of, of conspecifics is probably a lot easier, uh, less, less problematic in the overwintering period. So what's, um, uh, before our interview today, you were out on the field doing some research. Is that an average day for you? What's, uh, what's field work like? Yeah. So right now we have two main projects going on in the field. One is, well, one is in these aviaries, these large cages that I mentioned before, where one of my students is working on a question of, it's it's sort of following up from a study I did earlier where uh, I found that in field populations, so just naturalistic observation studies of birds in their natural environment, uh, that in the species Carolina chickadees, uh, chickadees that were in larger flocks produced calls that were more complicated. So more complex, more sort of diverse ways they put the calls together hmm. than birds that were in really small flocks. Uh, and so we did an aviary study many years ago to try to test that experimentally where we set up small, medium, and large sized flocks. <coughs> and what we found is that in the aviaries, larger flocks, individuals were producing more complex calls than uh, individuals in smaller flocks. Uh, what she's doing is is a partial replication of that, but now also asking whether it's, is it the size of the flock per se or the density of individuals in an area? So maybe a small flock, but put in a smaller space where individuals presumably have to interact with one another a lot more that, that demands that you have a more complicated <coughs> communication style, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. to be able to say more things and influence behavior in more ways. It's all part of this idea called the social complexity hypothesis for communication uh, that argues species or populations that occur in large, complex, diverse groups have to be able to say more things, communicate more messages, and so need a more complicated communication system than relatively solitary or relatively simple groups of of species or populations. Mm. That makes sense. Huh, um, man, because I, I, I'm always uh, I'm I'm prone to isolation myself, and I don't have Me the too. best vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, maybe that's part of it. I, I haven't really like. Well, I don't I don't need to know a bunch of big words to get, communicate to myself alone in my hotel room yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, how much? Uh, so so songs are being used for. Um, is it? In terms of territory, is it, it how does it work? Is it like a a warning system, or is it just a kind of messaging system, just so they know that, that they're there for other species, or or within the species, just different groups? How how is that used ter- territorial? Yeah, so territorially, uh, <laughs> I I think the the general view now is that. S- song in most songbirds has that dual function that that males have to use it to court and ultimately copulate with females in a lot of species 
Um, but that it also has that function in territorial species as a, like a keep out signal. Uh, and one of the best studies of that, uh, that function, uh, I don't know if you know Steve Nowicki at Duke University, his mm-hmm. lab group, uh, did a study where they recorded a bunch of territorial males and typically the way a territoriality study is done is you play back the song in another male's territory and then see how that male responds, which is the reverse of how this thing should function. And so what Nowicki and his group did was they've got these recordings from male A and then B, C, and D are in the territories around him. They caught male A and then they're playing back his songs from a speaker on his territory. And the question was, how much time passes until one of those males comes in because if it's a keep out signal it should keep them out for mm-hmm. quite a while and that's what they found is that if they if they play back that male's songs males tend to stay out longer than if they play back a stranger male song from that territory or play nothing at all hmm. uh, so that's the the keep out function i imagine the uh, the mating song is a bit more impressive than than the keep out uh, <laughs> territorial songs, right? Uh, probably more sophistication to them. I think in some species, but um, this is where I'm showing my non-birder flag. Uh, I think it's the case in the wood warblers, this big group of species that I don't they don't typically overwinter here, but they they breed here and in Canada. Uh, that males in this group have typically like one song, maybe a couple songs for females, but their keep out territorial songs are a lot more complicated and there's a lot more of them Hmm. in the typical repertoire. I could be wrong, but I think that's the... Yeah, let's go with it. No, I don't think anyone's going to (laughs) check. Um, (laughs) Just getting angry emails from... uh, (laughs) That'd be fine. (laughs) That that would be the... the, um, perfect thing for that just really fine i I have the nicest listeners ever that are always just like very curious people (laughs) but that would be great if like just someone snapped because no you got it all wrong that Um, would be if we can do a a a sidetrack for a moment yeah i I did uh uh, college radio as an undergraduate i was a dj but it was on a cable radio station and we had these long philosophical con- conversations with one another, the other DJs, about, you know, do you ever get the sense when you're playing a song and when you're talking that this is just going out to the void oh, and yeah. there's nobody listening? I mean, that's. I know that's comforting. not true for you. Yeah, but, but it, that's funny. Th- just the way you mentioned it just brought back memories <laughs> of that radio program. Yeah, I mean, it was college radio, so there probably wasn't anyone listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I I don't know. I go I go back and forth. I do need to be mindful that like, oh, uh, someone listening may no not know this bit of information. Right. Like, if I don't, I, I got to follow up. And um, but usually, I I kind of forget that there's people listening for for yeah, yeah, yeah. to to hold the, uh, the conversation when um, when it comes to song complexity is it especially well I guess in either um, circumstance it would make sense is it 
something that is a indicator of health um so so the ability to make a more complex song is this telling females information about health or telling potential rival males something about about fitness um is this something that's been tested in terms of like can you give a bird a cold or something like Mm -hmm. that and see if they uh if their songs become um less intricate or or loud or whatever yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a long history of looking at this, and I th- I think the the results are kind of mixed. But there's there's an old study with northern mockingbirds. This is a species. It's actually the state bird of Tennessee, um, but it's a species that mimics the songs of other species, and they have these enormous repertoires. So just hundreds and hundreds of songs in their their song repertoires that they use. Um, and, uh, Rick Howard. Oh, wait, that's the, that's the mimicking species? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I've seen, yeah, what's the name of it again? Northern Mockingbird. There's also... But there's some other, there's like one other species that does a perfect representation of other species too, right? Yeah, there's lots of mimics. Uh, so there's catbirds here, uh, brown thrashers is another species. There's, there's wicked interesting birds like in australia new zealand uh, liar birds if you've seen uh maybe that's david attenborough special that has uh like doing chainsaws and camera that's sounds. what that's yeah, what it yeah, is yeah, i know I've there's some that. fantastic yeah. footage that i've seen yeah, of that yeah that's, a, that's, that's the one amazing that I, yeah mockingbirds are not that good okay no disrespect to people that study <laughs> mockingbirds um but yeah, the, this... you're really going to get so much hate mail <laughs> from all the birders out there. You, you shit it out of their, their favorite activity, the, the big year. Now you're screwing up all their details of their favorite species. You're mocking mockingbirds. I'm sorry. It was, uh, I did say I'm Continue. not a birder, yeah, right? That's so, true. Okay. Uh, yeah, so th- this was a study back in the 70s that, that found that males with larger repertoires, I think, had more fi- had greater fitness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more recent studies have found different, it's sort of e- equivocal, I guess, in some species, a larger, more complicated song or repertoire is related to health or condition or fitness, but not necessarily. Hmm. So that's a political non-answer, I hmm. guess. Is, is there, um, if, how, how much has uh technology influenced modern bird research i I mean i i don't know how much audio equipment has has advanced lately but now with with being able to do um study genomes and do Mm -hmm. dna tests and i imagine maybe even tracking has has gotten easier what what has been the um some of the advancements in the in the history of bird research yeah, so one of my heroes was not, he was not a, a researcher of birds. He was a primatologist, C. Ray Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some photos of him back in the early part of the 1900s in really isolated jungle areas with hundreds of pounds of recording equipment and these massive parabolas that you'd have to sort of rig and engineer to aim up at a, a primate somewhere, you know, 50 feet, 80 feet up in the canopy. Uh, so that was difficult, mm-hmm. uh, bordering on impossible, I would think. Uh, and since then, my the equipment I used when I was a graduate student, so that was in the 1990s, was heavy and bulky, but you could move it around pretty easily. Um, you could go from site to site. 
pretty easily. The equipment that you have here was is less than that, but not not much less. Uh, but now, in for field recording, we have a digital record. I'm pointing as if this means anything to somebody <laughs> listening to this. Um, you know, that's not much bigger than an iPhone. Uh, and just, you know, microphones that are light and really high quality. So the, the equipment is so great and so light and so portable now. Um, the memory on SD cards or micro SD cards is just, it's just incredible. Um, and the technology is getting to the point where um, I'm starting to hear and read about this where we can – they do this in larger mammals pretty regularly, but now, <coughs> excuse me, there's the possibility of putting very small microphones on birds that uh, the battery life can be like a week or two. Interesting. <clears throat> and you just put a little harness or somehow attach it to the bird. And so you're basically getting every single sound it produces for the life of the battery. And then you just have to get the equipment back. You think... It uh, you know, there's the um, uh, the birds where they get marked with a with a different color, and and you you put the blue band on its leg, and now all of a sudden this guy gets laid like crazy because the the ladies love this blue band, and you and you uh, you put an orange band on another guy's leg, and no one will talk to him anymore. You think that if uh, if you put these little microphones on, people like think he's a narc and. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Or he's in the music industry, and maybe uh, this uh, is somebody you want to hang out with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and yeah. basically, what what your what all of this has taught us um, was, if for listeners, if you go to my Instagram, you'll see the kind of recording equipment that I use. I guess this is a little bit of an overkill. This is probably a, a hair yeah. unnecessary. It sure looks professional. Most of, most of this stuff, you know, I could have handheld microphones that are lighter and work really yeah. just as well, but this looks like I'm really doing something here. Well, and then you'd get all the the hand noise on the mic, which we get uh, in our recordings. So ah, this, is, this is more professional. Yeah, yeah, I'm a pro. Um, so, speaking of noise, what what role um, do you study? Any of the kind of role in our modern environment, the human influence? With uh, you, you mentioned the um, the Australian bird that's mm-hmm. that's doing the chainsaw sounds and and stuff. So, so that bird gets to have all sorts of fun with all the new modern sounds. Right, right. I imagine it creates all sorts of issues for most any other species. Yeah, so the traffic noise in particular, a lot of people are studying in in birds uh, because birds are so heavily vocal, vocally dependent. Um, and a lot of birds have the sounds they produce down at frequencies that are low enough that traffic noise could be masking some of the sounds that they're they're trying to communicate with. Um, and there's been a variety of findings. One of the relatively common ones is that birds that have relatively low pitched sounds if they're in areas with a lot of traffic they either develop or flexibly use or maybe in some cases evolve higher pitched sounds so that they're sort of rising out of the background noise floor that traffic noise is Mm. causing um some species don't do that or can't do that but there's other solutions they can do is like sing or call later uh, Maybe when traffic noise dies down, uh, former graduate student hey, of mine, Mickey, it, it, the throat would get sore. It's like like trying to 
trying to yell uh, communicate yeah, yeah. trying to trying to pick up a girl in a nightclub or something like that and you're having to you got to scream the all the time yeah but you want to be cool you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the i'm trying to remember the name the lombard effect right so that's where you 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 speak louder you just increase the sound of what you're producing to try to get over the noise i think that's there's some the evidence lombard in some effect. animals mm. i think so isn't it? I should know this. I was thinking the Lombard effect was that the human social capacity for remembering names is like 200 people. Is that, or is that another thing that I think that might be another similar? thing that's, yeah, okay. but I'm not sure. I bet you're right. <laughs> if I had to guess, <laughs> my money's on you. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then and the other solution to the problem is a former graduate student of mine, Jessica Owens, did a study in these aviaries I mentioned before where she played back traffic noise at certain times of the day through these really large speakers. And what she found is that the birds she was studying, tufted titmice, they don't change their calls or their rates of calling. They just move closer together. So that's the other solution to trying to communicate in a lot of noise is just get closer to the person you're trying to communicate with. Hmm. So there's lots of potential solutions to the, the human traffic noise problem. Hmm. Um, so, so I heard you, I mean, you just, again, you were kind of starting trouble with the pigeon people out there earlier. What were the three species you said that were the, the least, oh, least popular? Uh, so the European starling Be, because, introduced. Because I understand that people hate the brood parasite. Yeah. You're, you're taking advantage of some other species. I mean, what a terrible thing to do. But what's, what's wrong with this? So starlings are everywhere. Okay. Uh, it's an pests. introduced species, sort of a pest species. House sparrows as well, introduced species. Um, and then pigeons, I don't know the rock dove, why they're hated other than they do really well in urban areas and maybe there is an I association like a with. I do, I do too. They're, they're interesting. Yeah, that's what I said. I mean, Nikola Tesla is a big pigeon fan. I didn't know that. Yeah, he oh. he was like uh, he went a, a little um, mad later on in life <laughs> and developed some interesting relationships All with right. pigeons. I'll, I'll, uh, I will look into that. <laughs> yeah, um, I uh, speaking of uh, interesting relationships with do, do you when you go out and you're doing research, are there like individuals that you get to know and recognize over time? Uh, years ago. When I was doing almost exclusively field work, uh, I'm, I'm just—I only came here today to remind <laughs> you of all of the skills that that have have dulled in your <laughs> in your no, recent this, years. This was even easier. This was a there was a, a female chickadee that we had used in one of our captive studies. So she was color marked. We knew who she was. We could identify her in the field. We release all the birds we study at the end of the study, you know, back at their, their site of, of capture. And for whatever reason, she had this really distinctive call. I think it's probably because she had some maybe natural damage to the syrinx. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know much about the way birds produce sound. But I don't, but I'm sure people would love to hear about there's, it. So they have a syrinx rather than our larynx, which is basically a two-sided no, uh, sound production organ. Wait, ours is? Ours is one. Okay. The birds, uh, a lot of bird species have two. And what's interesting about it in birds is that they can independently, a lot of species can independently produce sound on those two sides. 
Ah. Uh, and sometimes they, like in Northern Cardinals, I think they alternate from like the right to the left as they're singing. They don't overlap, but other species can overlap and create all these cool acoustic distortion kinds of sounds. Could you, or is there a species out there that that can do a, a territorial and a mating thing at the same, at the same time? I don't know. There, there, there's question. like a... a, a is it maybe cuttlefish where they can oh, yeah. uh, where they yes. can display one side <laughs> yes. for the females and then the other side is like camouflage yep. or whatever? That's a fantastic study. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Maybe uh, it's possible that like the the one side of the syrinx is producing the lower frequency sounds that are maybe more relevant to either females or males, and the mm. other side produces the higher frequency that's more important to the other sex. Mm. I don't know. Um, but this female, but this female, I think had a problem with one of the sides because she produced this really distinctive kind of squeaky call. I don't know how to describe it. And I, I certainly can't imitate it, but you could hear her from a long ways away. And mm. it was always that one female. And she also lived about four years, which is pretty rare in this species. The, the mortality rate is about 50% every year for small songbirds like this. Mm. Uh, and so just the fact she was around for so long really stood out. Wait, as, what's that mean? The mortality rates 50% per, what's the, what's the average lifespan of this species? So yeah, if, so if a year. bird makes it through one full breeding season, it's done pretty well. And if it makes it to a second breeding season, it's like a, an oh. all-star. Um, so she, just predation she and parasitism and, and old wise so. oracle. I think so with a squeaky voice. Yeah. yeah. So she really stood out. But that's the limits of my perceptual ability. I could tell that individual because of this weird voice that she had. Yeah, it's just because you brought up, uh, you know, uh, primatologists who, who you know, sometimes form these kind of unique bonds and uh, yeah, yeah, kind of to kind of pick out personality. I would think it'd be very difficult to p- pick out the personality of a bird. But do do birds have? Oh, I yeah. imagine birds have have a varying. Uh, quite a bit of varying personality amongst them. Some are probably a little more aggressive. Some are a little yeah, more exactly. timid. Yeah, this has been pretty well studied in in Europe, particularly where um, there's bo- <coughs> it's it's called the shy bold shy bold continuum, where uh, there are birds that, in the presence of predator stimuli or in the presence of really new things, it's like they don't care. They're going to still go about their business. Whereas other birds of the same species could even be the same population, even the same flock in some species. The second there's the chance of risk or danger, they just, they stay back. They're, they're sort of frozen and, and. That's weird that they call it yeah. the shy bold strategy shy, because bold don't they call the shy bold strategy in any other species, the hawks and doves uh, strategy? Like in, in, yeah. in like game theory? Yeah, that's uh, I think that's more for like contest uh, oh, situations, whereas this is just like how do you approach <laughs> a new situation? to use, use a bird reference for, for everything re- else, and then for birds you use a different <laughs> reference. Um, but yeah, 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 I'm just confusing my, my meanings a little bit. So yeah. all, all is well and everything makes yeah, sense right. again. And then there are, there are sort of like humans. There are some birds that are just a lot more active, more fidgety than others. There's at least w- we study vocal communication. There's some birds that call all the time and others that you have to record for a very long period of time to get calls from for whatever reason. Mm. So there's a lot of... <clears throat> Whether it's personality or not, 
there's certainly a lot of individual level variation like that that seems to be pretty repeatable. So the birds that you um, that uh, you mostly research r- around in this area, is it the same species that have been in this area for some time or has has there been any kind of human influence impacts of any global warming, any industrial with roads or anything that <coughs> that have made um, some species move elsewhere, some other species maybe come in mm-hmm. and, and do well here? Yeah, so we one of the reasons I study chickadees and titmice is they they're they're socially complicated, which is interesting for the kind of research that I do. But I'm also I wouldn't say I'm lazy, but like if I can do something easily, I'll go that route. And You're chickadees efficient. and yeah, efficient. That's a good yeah. yeah. Chickadees and titmice are everywhere. I, you can go outside this building and probably hear a chickadee if you walk ten minutes in pretty much any direction. And this is an urban campus. Um, so they, they're found in pretty populated, I mean, they're not found in downtown Knoxville, but anywhere that's got a decent sized forest, you'll find them all the way into really, really deep forests and, you know, like the, going into the Smoky Mountains or the Cumberland Mountains. Um, and so that's one reason I was attracted to this species is they're everywhere and they're just really amenable to, to study. It's easy to study them in their natural habitat. Um, as far as I know, they've been here as long as we've had documentation of them. There's, um, I actually don't know for the local, uh, like the chicked, uh, chickadee, the Cherokee people that were here originally. Uh, I don't know what they have in terms of uh, knowledge about this species in particular, but um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book. There's a kid's book that's written about the Ojibwe and chick, the chickadee. It's, it's sort of a, a creation tale or, or sort of a story about the, the chickadee and what it communicates about. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's clear they had a, a, a rich knowledge of that particular species, which suggests it's been around for a very, very long time in that location. Mm. Um, so what's take away the constraints of, of how easy or hard it is to research a bird. What is your fa- the most fascinating bird out there to you? Uh, probably the bridled titmouse. Uh, this Ooh. is a species that is mostly in Mexico, but it just dips up into the United States in uh, the Chiricahua Mountains in southeastern Arizona. So I've been out there, I've recorded uh, them in the field, and they're just uh, really sort of fascinating species. They form really big flocks, which for this theory, the social complexity hypothesis idea that suggests they should have really complicated vocal behavior. Um, and so I've wanted to go back somehow and, and start a project out there. It's just it's the other side of the country, and mm. um, I've only been out there twice. Plus... If you've ever been to the Chiricahua Mountains, that's a magical place. It's just a fantastic, really beautiful area. Hmm. I'll have to go. Yeah, I, yeah. I get to go anywhere I want to. I'm gonna. I'll put it on the list. If you go, I always go in the winter because that's when I can get off school and uh, like in winter break. And I'm, I always go. I've been there twice. It's not like I go there every winter. Um, I'm usually the only person staying at the Southwest Research Station. It's a biological station in the, in the Chiricahua Mountains. Um, 
but they have a lot of activity going on there in the spring through the late summer months. So I can send you a link. You might want to look into that. You would meet a lot of very interesting science nerdy type people, including, awesome. including real birders. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to, I really want to get in there and dissect that yeah, and, yeah. and what, what drives them. We all have our weird thing. I mean, there's certainly worse hobbies out there to yeah. have, but that is, uh, you didn't uh, just I, imply it was weird. Uh, what they did, right? I, I did a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems, it seems a little strange to fly around to see things that fly. And like, it, I don't know. It's just like it, it, you know, you know what I don't like about it? It's like um, it's it's like when people take a vacation and they need to check off all of like the top touristy sites. They're not like actually going in and appreciating anything yeah. or like learning about it or like, uh, really like experiencing it and engrossed uh, being becoming engrossed. They're just checking, checking off a thing yeah. for, to like show off to their friends. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, okay whatever that's it that's just not what i'm into so that's that's me talking mad shit about birders this is we really we've really given birders a hard time today this is fun i've i've never i've never gotten to openly mock birders on the podcast before who knew it was going to be a bird researcher that would allow me that privilege this that's is great i'm looking forward to the next science meeting where i'm going to be confronted about this that's, that'll be fine so at the end of each podcast, let's uh, uh, to um, to make amends for our for our <laughs> sins. I, I I have my my guests mention a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? I do. Uh, when I joined, uh, when I came to Tennessee in the early two thousands, I joined an organization called Save Our Cumberland Mountains Sockum. Um, and it was an organization mainly uh, focused on uh, conservation issues and fighting against like mountaintop removal, mining, and uh, later fracking and those kinds of practices. Uh, the name changed uh, several years ago, but they wanted to keep the same SOCM this is there's a reason they, for this they were just really socm can't top that sock them yeah so it's now statewide organizing for compu uh, community empowerment oh, come they on had to now. they had to lowercase the e and uppercase <laughs> oh, okay. the m okay but, but well, i mean they just had the website already created they I, didn't want to like change the name or well, something sock like is a good name it's it's a good it's a, like confrontational activist kind of name yeah now they're into a lot it. of community organizing and, and things in urban environments. It's all throughout the state. And so Save Our Cumberland Mountains wasn't as sort of relevant ah, anymore to the new organizing they were doing. Hmm. Uh, and so it's SOCM.org. It's a great group of people and they're doing a lot of good work throughout the state of Tennessee. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you this so much for, for ending my career with bird watchers. <laughs> That will be hilarious. That's that's not going to happen. I can guarantee. Yeah, yeah. I can guarantee you, you're not going to get a single a single angry email. But my fingers are crossed that you do. And if if, if you do, please forward it to me. I will let so you know. So I can laugh and laugh and laugh. Uh, Todd Freeberg, thank you so much. And people can check out more on the HereWeArePodcast.com website. We'll talk with you more next week.
Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking about consumer behavior with Nessie Nassif back in my hometown of the University of Wisconsin, Lacrosse. Make sure and tune in for that. I wanted to share with you guys some updates with the Head Talks tour, doing the big five cities coming up in December in Lincoln, Nebraska, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Dallas, and Austin, doing a test run. I know the show's going to be tons of fun and going to be a hit. We're just figuring out how many seats we're going to need for a big full tour. So um, make sure and spread the word. If you want it to come to you sooner, reach out to anyone you know in those areas. It's going to be a psychedelic version of stand-up science. Um, Sophia Rockland will be joining me for those five days, who is a past uh, recent guest on the podcast. Fantastic communicator. I'm also adding a couple other people. We just added to Oklahoma City. Thomas Ray, he's going to be giving a talk about DMT. He's kind of a legend in the field of DMT research. Really cool stuff. Lots more news to come. But the real exciting um, new news this week is that I have an official partnership with the tour with the MAPS organization, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies and Dance Safe. And so if you are unfamiliar with those organizations, they are uh, really great groups. MAPS is probably the biggest organization paving the way for psychedelic research. They sponsored the Good Trip Tour years ago, and it was just kind of a cross-promotional arrangement. They uh, they help promote my shows, and um, and I help promote them at my shows. And it's fantastic. When I first started venturing into the world of doing psychedelic comedy and communication and i wanted to have kind of legit researchers on the podcast and and maps was the place to go i had a couple of them on years ago we had a great time got to know one another Um, some of the people came to some of my live performances and liked what i was doing and and liked the way that I was mixing science and comedy and talking about psychedelics today and and the history of them and wanted to be a part of it. And so we partnered up and we've done a lot of collaborations since and I think this is going to be the biggest one yet, ultimately. They're going to be helping me get a, a lot of great researchers and different therapists and things like that, even artists in all different areas everywhere that I'm go uh, that I go which is going to be a huge undertaking and dance safe is a harm reduction organization that does stuff like testing uh, doing drug testing for people at festivals and concerts and those sorts of things and really um, advocating for responsible use and um, you know we all know people are are going to do things um, despite what the laws or regulations might be so they help make sure people are doing it safely and it's an important cause and I'm looking forward to having some of their people on the tour as well in um, select markets and so just very very excited about that go to shanemossmauss.com for all of my tour dates and those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites 
Star Fans Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.